Good afternoon, Shilin. We have to admit that one of the difficulties that we face in the faith is assessing and judging our progress in the faith. And not only ours, but the progress of others as well. You know, we've talked about this over the past few weeks because the only thing that we can use as a litmus test to judge the progression of our faith is what comes out on the outside. Our works, the things that we do. I want to be a little conversational in our message today. I don't know how often you've seen preachers do this, okay? But I want to invite you, the audience, to add to the message. And I'm going to throw a question at you. What are some criteria that you have used or you have seen others use as a measure to judge from someone's faith or the degree of their holiness or their faithfulness and so, so forth? You don't have to raise your hands. You just call it out. <laughs> How you deal with conflict. Ooh, I, oh, I like that one, Jay. Oh, that's good. How you deal with conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do you respond to adversity? That's a great one. What else? What else do we use when we look at someone? We go, wow, that brother or that sister, ooh, they are legitimate, right? Bible verse references, yeah. Yeah, when you're in conversation, right, and, and you're just like, hey, I have, I have this issue. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Mm, you're free, brother, right? Yeah, you can cite Bible verses, right? That immediately makes you seem inherently holy, right? What else? What else? What else do you see and use as a measure of one's faith? Oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to start with Daisy, and I'm going to go to Gavin. Okay, Daisy. How much they pray. Oh, you can't beat that one, right? Oh, what were you doing yesterday? I prayed for 25 hours. <laughs> How'd you do that? I have the spiritual gift of making time, right? What in the world, right? Yeah, prayer, right? Oh, you get so intimidated when you ask someone that. What were you doing? I was at prayer mountain for nine hours, right? Didn't eat, right? I didn't drink. I didn't think. I just prayed. What? Right? Yeah, prayer. Gavin, what, what, what did you add? Helping and loving others, yeah. I mean, there are so many things and so many ways that we look at people as a display of their faithfulness, their holiness, and their progress as Christians. But we've already established throughout the series that we're not saved by our good works. Right? We're not saved by our good works. We're justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, His work on our behalf. And yet, I think part of the confusion that we deal with regarding good works as a reflection of our progress in our faith and perhaps even our standing in the faith is that God throughout Scripture commands it so much. He commands good works all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the Bible. Even throughout the New Testament, Paul, the writer of God's grace, continues to speak to us about the primacy and the importance of doing good. And I think therein lies the confusion. Because we're trying to figure out how works fits into the ecosystem of salvation, of justification, and these things. So today, I want to just cut to the chase as far as dealing with the question that so many of us wonder and ask. And that is, why good works? Why does God save us by faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, and yet 
finds no problem commanding good works as a part of the life of the believer? That's the question that I want to unpack and deal with today. Again, what's the point of good works? And so today we're going to step into Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is an incredibly fun, exciting, dynamic passage. Paul has already been pretty intense right, in talking about the curses of those who are preaching a false gospel. And we mentioned about how the context provides us a picture where you had these Judaizers, right? these Jewish people in nature who were coming into Galatia, who were giving a faith plus works equal salvation sort of teaching. They were saying, yeah, yeah, faith in Jesus is really good. It's cute. It's nice. But you know what? You're not really saved unless you show for it. In fact, let us tell you what you got to do. They even told Peter that you got to eat only what Jews eat. You can't meddle with the uncleanliness of Gentiles, which ironically, Peter had already received a vision, if you remember in Acts chapter 10, that it's okay to eat what the Gentiles eat. And yet Peter shrunk back in fear. Not only did he stop eating what God permitted, but he stopped eating with Gentiles in the church of Galatia. There was elitism. There was a sense of subtle racism that was involved in there. So Paul comes out and he rebukes Peter for following these Judaizers. Chapter 5 is kind of crazy because Paul then begins to address another issue that these Judaizers were coming in with. They were coming in and saying, if you really want to be saved, you, if you're a male, have to have the outward sign of covenant which in the Old Testament was circumcision. Now, we're not going to be going over that particular part of chapter 5 today, but basically what Paul says is this. He says, have you been so fooled to think that you have to go back to that to have what you already paid for by blood? And so he looks to the Judaizers. He addresses them, and he says, if you're going to come in preaching circumcision to bind the people by law once again, he says, I wish that you would be mature about your own belief. I wish that you would go all the way. Don't just circumcise. He says, I'm using biblical terms. Your ESV says this. He says, I wish that you would just emasculate yourself. That is biblical language for yes. Paul is that intense about helping the church of Galatia figure out what good works are actually unto and what God uses them for in his economy, in his church, in his family. And so again, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go back to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 16. If you're there, let me hear you say, I'm there. All right. Verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes this. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, Paul does something really cool here. He begins to talk about an ontological new reality. Ontological, that's a fancy word, right? He begins to talk about the new nature of the believer's being. Who are you now that you are saved? Last week, we talked about positionally in front of God. When we get saved, we become his sons and daughters. We become his little children, right? But not only does our status change on the outside judicially, right, by the law, we are now saved, not only in terms of family, by being children, but something also changes ontologically 
in our beings. See, before we were saved, we walked in this thing called the flesh. Everyone say flesh. Oh, even sounds dirty, right? Flesh, right? right? We walked in the flesh. Now, the flesh is the part of us that we walk in prior to salvation that is just the expression of our rebellion and our inclination towards evil and sin. It is who we are in essence before we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the way that Paul paints this picture, and he doesn't do it just in Galatians 5. He also does this in Romans chapter 7 where he talks about how we are at war against the flesh. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul said, because the Spirit of God has now entered into us, we now call out to God, Abba, Father. Right? The flesh is that thing that makes us crave, hunger, walk towards sin. Because the Spirit of God has now come into us, we live this life until Jesus returns and we are entering into our glorified state. We are in an all-out war for the rest of our lives. To undo, to work against the flesh so that the Spirit of God would take reign and ownership in our lives. That's why I mentioned this, right? We often like to think that the curve of spirituality is a straight line. Like, oh, you start from here, but in a year, you better be here, right? But faith, as our lives change and as we engage new circumstances, it's not always so easy like that. You might be doing well, but you enter into a new job, a new setting. You move somewhere. Many of you guys move to Korea from another place, and you're facing new challenges here that you wouldn't have faced back at home. Life is so unpredictable in that way, and we're constantly at war within ourselves against the flesh. But here's the good news about the flesh. The flesh is not the thing that has the final word. The way that I like to talk about our war between spirit of God within us and the flesh within is that... The flesh is the sinful remains that are crying out on its way out. I want to say that again. Our flesh are the sinful remains of us that are crying out on its way out. Okay. They cry out on its way out. And so Paul says that the flesh keeps us, in verse 17, to keep us from doing the things you want to do. I love the way that Paul says that. That's a, that's a subtle encouragement that we have to take and understand. Paul is acknowledging, you want to do What's good as children of God? You do, but here is the flesh. It keeps you from doing what you want to do. Paints that picture in a totally different way. And so I want to I transition by moving on to verse 18. Paul not only talks about the flesh as a theological issue, but he expands on it on how it shows up. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. How does the flesh show up? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love how Paul puts that, and things like these, right? Because if you're reading the list and you're like, nah, man, look, look I, I know I, got, I sin in my life, but man, my sin's not listed. And Paul says, things like these. That's when you're taking a multiple choice exam, right? And you got A, B, C, D, and you're like, oh, dang, which one am I? And you go, all of the above, right? <laughs> Except Paul's saying all of the above and more, right? He adds that in there. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
whoa, Pastor Billy, I feel like that one passage has now undone everything we talked about in Galatians. I thought you said that we are saved by grace, we are saved by faith, and the word that has the final word at the end of the day is not what I do, but it is what Jesus has done for me. So what's Paul saying here? This seems contradictory, that he would say, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is why it helps to read in context of the passage, but also in context with the larger teachings of Paul, Jesus, and the entire New Testament. See, what Paul is not going to now is a theology of work salvation. But when he talks about those who practice such things, he's talking about a category of people who might say, oh, I'm saved, I know Jesus, and yet they have no remorse, no guilt, or no struggle in their fight against sin. He's not saying people who on their way towards sanctification, not salvation, but sanctification, right? Salvation is we are already saved. Sanctification is we are being saved. We are being renewed. Paul talks about this in Romans, right? We are being renewed. And in the renewal process, there is this thing called the struggle. Paul's addressing those who in their complacency, who in their absolute disregard of their relationship with their father, he's asking, are you really a son if you don't care? about your father's heart. Now, I want to illustrate this in case some of you guys are now looking at yourself and going, I'm not saved because <laughs> I sinned this week and because, I don't know, I don't feel like I love God. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, when I was in college, right, I mean, everything, everything for me happened in college, right? That's when I got saved, right? College is a great time to be saved because it's the first time you feel like you have freedom to choose. You know what I'm talking about? I talked about this last week too, right? Um, you don't always do the best things with the freedom at hand. But nonetheless, it's the moment in life where you feel like you are responsible for the decisions you make. Now, after I got saved, right, you know, my friends and I, like, we, it was like a revival. Like, so many of us were growing together so well, right? We had, like, accountability groups and all these things, right? We're helping keep each other accountable from lust and, like, just other character issues and so forth. So we had, like, a group of us, right? And we, we'd meet up weekly. And we weren't, like, really... You know, in an accountability group, you want to be encouraging, right? Like, hey, brother, fight the good fight. It's going to be okay. I'm, I'm going to support you, right? But you know how we supported each other? We'd show up, right? And then brothers would come and they'd be like, yeah, man. Like, how was this past week? Yeah, yeah, I fell, right? You know, I fell is like universal language for like I fell into temptation and so forth, right? I don't know why we choose to say that, right? Would you, would you stumble over, right? Did you, did you fall? Did you hit your head on something? No, but we, we like saying it that way. So we go, oh, man, we fell. So you know how we would encourage each other? Dude, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're so stupid, man. Why would you do that, right? Literally, this is how we spurred each other on towards greater holiness. I wouldn't suggest it, but it worked for us, right? You're young, you're collegians, right? And you're still full of passion and zeal. It works, right? And so we'd say, man, you're dumb. You're stupid. And we'd go, okay, let's go eat dinner, right? And we could still hang out. It was a weird type of covenant community, right? A weird way of encouraging, okay? So... We had these accountability groups, but there, was, there came a moment, right? And I think many accountability relationships go like this, right? Where you're like, I feel like I'm not coming out of my sin. So I remember one of, one of our guys, he goes, yo, Bill, I don't know if I'm saved. I'm like, why? He goes, because I can't stop. I can't stop falling, right? Like, I don't want to, but I can't stop. But I really don't want to, but I can't stop. 
what am I going to do? And I was like, snaps, man. I don't know, dude. Maybe you are not saved, right? <laughs> like, you know, we, we were just fresh believers, you know, or like we had freshly rededicated our lives. So, you know, we went to our campus ministry pastor, right? I mean, he was like, he was the Bible man. And, you know, he was super encouraging, but we knew, like, he was authoritative in the way that he just, I don't know, he was such a friend to us, but he just knew God's word so well. So we went to him. We're like, yo, yo, Pastor Eric, here's our question, right? I don't know if we're saved, right? Because we don't do what we want to do, like, but, but we keep doing what we don't want to do. And, and if we just keep showing for it in the wrong way, doesn't it mean we're just not saved? And he just looked at us, and we thought he was going to own us, you know, like pastoral owning, right? Like, yeah, you got to go to Prayer Mountain, and you got to, like, pray, you got to pray the devil out of you, you know? I thought he was going to come out with some kind of response like that, and I was shocked, right? Because this man was, he's, like, super holy. Like, you can't, you can't touch him anywhere, right? Like, he's, like, he's so good as a person. I mean, I'm sure he's got his own stuff, right? Because nobody, nobody perfect, okay? But he looked at us, and he just said, the fact that you're asking that question tells me where your allegiance is. The fact that you are concerned about your faith, the fact that your sin makes you wonder and think about your relationship with your Father in Heaven tells me everything I need to know. And we we're like, well, that was quick. <laughs> Paul here is not addressing those who are in the struggle who are in the wrestle. He's encouraging you. He has already encouraged you. He says, when you are fighting against the flesh, the flesh keeps you from doing what you already want to do. Don't doubt your allegiance. Jesus' work and his blood still speaks a better word. Paul here is only speaking to those who claim faith, who claim sonship in front of God, and yet they use it as license sin. It's a gut check moment. Do you feel bad? Friends, I'm not all about motivating people through guilt. Okay? I think that's cheap. It's cheesy, right? But I'll say this. When in your own personhood, if guilt arises because of your sin against someone else, or your sin in front of God, that's appropriate. Not shame, not shame, but guilt. There's a difference between the two. Guilt simply says, I have done something wrong. Therefore, I repent. I turn away and walk in the right direction. Shame, on the other hand, says, I am wrong. My being, my personhood is wrong. When we sin in front of God, when we sin in front of others, it's not to doubt our allegiance, but it is okay to feel remorse and say, God, friend, brother, sister, I'm sorry. Now, of course, Paul doesn't just end there, though, with the list of what happens with the flesh. Friend, the flesh is at war with the spirit. So what happens when you live according or you walk according to the spirit, as Paul says? Look at verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Oh, I want to just stop there real quick. It says, against such things, there is no law. Friend, you can't put a quantity 
when you walk out according to the Spirit. You, you can't, you don't just measure love. You don't just measure kindness. It is what it is. And yet, Paul says, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is what arises in your being. He doesn't write here, daily, unceasing QT. You have to go on missionary journeys on foot like I have. Paul refers to things that, yes, you can see it being manifested as people come together. Paul says the evidence of the Spirit has to do with qualities that are often covered, unseen to the natural eye. Against such things, there is no law. What are you going to say to someone who's loving? Didn't love enough? You're not kind enough? No, if you're kind, you're kind. If you're loving, you're loving. If you're gentle, you're gentle. When's the last time you looked at someone and you said, he's half humble? <laughs> we all struggle with pride, do we not? Amen? Right? But we have moments where we are prideful, and we have moments where we are, yes, gentle in humility, under self-control. Against the, such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I love the way that Paul softens that at the end. Let us. Would you join me in exhibiting these signs? But I want to go back to verse 22. Paul says that the manifestations of the Spirit are what? They are a fruit. Now, we often get it mixed up. We think it's the fruits of the Spirit, right? So, okay, today I've got to work on love. And then tomorrow I'm going to work on kindness. And then on Wednesday I'm going to work on gentleness, right? But I love the way Paul puts it because when it's the fruit, it means that these things grow alongside one another. Have you ever grown a plant before? I have not. <laughs> but I've seen it on time lapse. When fruits grow, they don't grow disproportionately. When they do, we call it a defect. The stem, the seeds, the inside, the flesh, the outside, the, the skin, all these things have to be paced accordingly so that it can be delivered properly. Paul's strategic when he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They don't come out one by one. They grow together in harmony. I want to continue on the significance of how Paul refers to this as fruit. I'm borrowing from Pastor Tim Keller. This is what he says. Fruit grows over time gradually. You don't see complete love manifest in a person. Have you ever discipled someone who's a new believer? Man, I, I, like when you disciple someone who's a new believer, in particular, if they haven't been churched, oh, it's exciting. Because they're like, yo, Pastor Billy, I hate that guy. Ah, right, dude, yo, thanks for being real, man. Yeah, that, that's right. You probably do hate that guy. He's like, but today, I just walked over and I was like, hi. <laughs> Felt like the Spirit was telling me to say hi. And I'm like, Great job, man. Because in your flesh, you would have probably looked at him and said, I want to kill you, all right? But you greeted him in the Lord. 
He's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm like, good job, right? Love grows over time. But we often think that once you're saved and you have some breakthrough moment, it's like you got to be the Apostle Paul, right? Like you are just, you know, someone who is so far from the Lord, looking nothing like him, not wanting to be anything of him. And then all of a sudden, we expect people who get saved the next day to be at church 24-7, praying, reading their Bibles, and doing all these things. No, friends, discipleship is not overnight. I don't know if any of you guys have ever taken, like, a discipleship course, right? When I used to do discipleship with my staff, with some of our student leaders, I would always tell this to them on day one. I'd say, discipleship is not something you complete. Did you know discipleship goes on for eternity? Because we will forever be made into the likeness of Jesus beyond our physical, earthly death. God is infinite. It takes an infinite amount of time to catch up to an infinite God. Just because you got some certificate, you had a discipleship graduation, does not mean that you are now a full-fledged disciple. But you're on the way. We are on the way. The fruit of the Spirit grows gradually. He doesn't just say that. He said it also grows certainly when it's in the right soil. Fruit might have seasons where you might think, oh, it's stalling. But when you're in the right conditions, as we are placed in the hands of God and the Spirit, it grows with certainty. You don't have to doubt it because God will do what he longs to do in us. But I want to also highlight this third one that he mentioned. When Paul talks about the growth of the Spirit and its characteristics in us as a fruit, it means that a lot of the work takes place on the inside. When's the last time you looked at an apple or you looked at a watermelon? It's watermelon season, okay? This is appropriate. And you're like, man, I'm so excited to just eat the skin. Oh, I can't wait to just eat the green, the white, and the yellow. Nobody says that. You long for what's within. And so what the Spirit is doing for us is that He's not primarily building things, our giftedness, and these things on the outside. He's changing us from the inside out. Yafili, you know what I also find so intriguing about that? I touched on this, right? Sometimes when we think about the fire of the Spirit, we just think about the manifestation, right? Holy Spirit, come. Bah! Bah! Everyone falls on their face. Everyone begins to praise in tongues. Prophetic words, healing, and these things. We think that the primary work of the Holy Spirit when He shows up or His presence in a congregation or a ministry or at a retreat is when people just get knocked out and we see all these great signs and wonders take place. Now, I want to I set the record straight. I am all for signs and wonders. I believe God has given those things as a gift to His church today so that we might be able to further connect with who He is today. However, Paul, in this passage, does not say the fruit of the Spirit is prophecy, your gift of preaching, your tongues, your ability to lead. He does not refer to any of these things. But everything he refers to has everything to do with who you are on the inside. You want to show up somewhere and judge if the presence of God is real or not? Again, I'm not saying that when the Spirit shows up, that that doesn't mean He's not there. He's there. What I want to say is this. 
just because there is an absence of these things that we often deem as fire, as of the Spirit of God, there's more to it than that. Are the people you meet loving? Chillin, if someone were to step in to our congregation and describe us, would they say that we are full of love, kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, and the like? This, my friends, not according to what I think, but according to simply what Paul says through God himself, saying the true manifestation of the Spirit must ultimately be judged by these very things. It's amazing. What I also find to be awesome about the way that Paul says this is growing the fruit of the Spirit in love, patience, peace, kindness, and these things are something that we can work in conjunction with the Spirit. A lot of times when we go into ministry settings and we think about the manifestations and these things, Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, the Spirit blows wherever he wishes. You can't control these manifestations. Sometimes God starts healing people and you're like, I wasn't trying. Someone gets hit with tongues. I didn't, I didn't do that. Still remember, there was a time when, when I was praying for someone. It was the first time I'd experienced this, right? I'm just praying for them, you know, lay hands as pastor, right? It's like the nice thing to do, right? Feel the touch, right? I'm pastor, right? I love you, brother, right? And I just say, Lord, can you, can you show your love, right, to this brother? And as soon as I started praying, he got knocked over, right? I kid you not. It was the first time it happened to me. I looked around with this in mind. I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't push him. I didn't do anything. That was just God, okay? I wasn't even asking for God to do that, right? But the Spirit just shows up in that way. But the way we journey as a community, as individuals, to grow what's on the inside, that's something that we can be on pace with God, join hands with Him, and walk towards the end together. So now, i got to go back to our question. When, when we look at the list of the flesh and the Spirit of God, right, and all the manifestations of bad, so to speak, and good, so to speak, we're tempted to think, again, it's about works. you got to prove yourself, right? you got to prove who you are. And certainly, I do feel that Paul, as he's bringing up these lists and these characteristics of what it means to walk in the flesh and what it means to walk in the spirit, I do think Paul at least has three goals. One, I feel like Paul is trying to help us understand what it looks like to exercise our freedom in a positive way. Man, what would we look like if we joined with the Spirit to be loving, to be kind, and so forth. Well, it absolutely frees you. I've never met a person who says, I am so full of love, and I love loving, and I love being kind, who goes, I hate my life. Right? That's like, yeah, duh, <laughs> right? And yet, I believe that Paul's instructions and guidelines as given by the Lord is his way of helping us understand that when we live according to the Spirit, you'll be able to, even in the face of adversity, find as much joy as you can need. On the flip side, I've never met someone bitter who's absolutely happy about their lives. So I think Paul is talking about our freedom and its importance. I think Paul's also addressing a second thing. I think Paul's addressing our security. Because when you walk out in your freedom in a proper way, you will find yourself feeling more secure. Now, I'm not saying you got to feel like your salvation is based on your works, but let's be honest. 
when you begin to do well for the Lord, it is designed to help you understand, remind yourself once again, ah, indeed, I am loyal to God. Oh, I am his son. Oh, I am his daughter. It's designed to help you feel secure, although it is not your main security. It's just a reflection of how Jesus has already brought you along. But I think that there's more that Paul's after. What's interesting is that when you look at the signs of the flesh and the sign of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is that these are all characteristics that don't have to do just in our relationship with us and God. But it has to do with even the manifestation of how we relate with one another. See, because traditionally, we think of good works as something between us and God. Oh, I'm not a good Christian in front of God. I'm not a good son before the Lord. I am a bad daughter, or I'm a good daughter in front of God because of what I did or didn't do. We often construe Christianity as an individual thing, and yet, when we look at these signs, they have so much more to do with than just our relationship with God. It has so much to do with our relationships with one another. Look at verse 13. I'm going to track backwards a bit. It says this. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Friends, this is the framework by which he begins to discuss. Paul begins to share about the flesh and the spirit. He doesn't say that when you do the right thing, then as you stand in front of God, he will love you more. He will put you in greater standing or these things. No, he says Live out your freedom so that you can use it as an opportunity to serve one another in love. This morning, we hit, we're at swim, right? We met at a coffee shop today, right? We changed up the location of our swim. We met at a new pool. I'm so sorry. That's, that's a dad joke. That was a dad joke. Forgive me. That may not have been of the spirit. <laughs> I kid. Uh, we met at a cafe today, and we started going over a basic teaching on hermeneutics, how to read God's Word. So if you're just reading this passage through the lens of the Spirit and the flesh and the characteristics, you might begin to think, oh, I just have to live right. And certainly, that's part of what Paul is saying. But you have to expand out a little bit. What's the context? What is Paul saying before that? Paul is saying, and he's talking about all these characteristics in light of our ability in our freedom to serve and to love each other. So what's the point of good works? I want to get to the point. What's the point of good works? Why does God, why does Paul encourage his communities to follow through in good works for one another? Because we use our freedom as a loving opportunity to serve our neighbors. We use it as a loving opportunity to serve our neighbors. I love how Paul says it. When you love your neighbor as yourself, he says the whole law is fulfilled. That's crazy. The whole law is fulfilled when you love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. We got to trace that back. 
Who showed us this first? Was it not God from the Old Testament, even as he showed grace unto Adam and Eve, as he showed love to those who were his own creation, yet he invited them into his own backyard. And even though they sinned against him, he uses their sin as an opportunity to serve. We have the first signs that God will come and redeem. We call it the proto, the pre-gospel, right? The before gospel, where God... How does he clothe Adam and Eve in a place where there was no cotton? <laughs> there, was no, there was no factories where he could make some clothes for them, right? There's no H&M, first century, or, right, or prehistoric edition, <laughs> Uniqlo. <laughs> what did God do? He killed one of his own creation, an animal from the garden, that he might use its skin to cover those who are in shame. And God, throughout the entire Old Testament, those people continue and continue and continue to break his heart and fall away from him. What does God do over and over again? He just keeps giving love and his service as an opportunity to give themselves. And ultimately in Christ, what does our Lord do? He uses his opportunity, his life, to put himself on a cross that we might be served. Although we are not servable, although we are not those who are worthy, and yet he deems us worthy enough to give himself on our behalf. Freedom in the gospel, my friends, not ultimately to live for ourselves, to make myself holy, look good, protect our godly image. We think that, though. Ah, I got to do good to, like, be good. No. Christ has made us good in him already. But when we begin to change our outlook and our measure of holiness from our standing in front of God, using it as an opportunity to help others standing before God changes the game, changes everything. Because people may come to visit and look at the fire, but they stay for the love. When I go to bonfires, right, there's, not, there's not many opportunities for bonfires in Korea, right? But in the States, I mean, I live in sunny SoCal, so we live by like 10 beaches, right? You go to bonfires, sometimes you see people, right? One time I saw a burning party, right? They come and they burn like once a year, everything. It was the craziest bonfire I'd ever seen, like so high, right? I went over and I observed. I go, wow, what are you guys doing? Burning. Cool. And I went home after. <laughs> People pass by. That's cool. And they'll go home. But what keeps us is that love. Um, growing up, I was at a, as a, at a youth group. Um, and our youth group, our church was kind of crazy, right? We were like a bunch of ragtag youth kids and kind of like uncontrollable, right? We were known as like the youth group that people don't want to play with because we fight with them all the time. So we would have like inter-church bowling tournaments, right? Casual, right? 
like, hey, like, you know, we'd have mutual friends. Let's, let's meet up and we'll have a bowling competition, right? But then, like, they would fight. Like, hey, like, you cheated, right? And it's, like, totally, un, you know, unloving, totally not the fruit of the Spirit, right? All flesh, right? And then we'd have to spend, like, the next year trying to make amends, right? Like, we are sorry. Please forgive us for what we have done, right? The, what we would do for fun, right? <laughs> Some of the older guys, right? Like, I'm not, like, super athletic, you know? So I love sitting down, conversations, and, hey, how's life? And, you know... But, like, some of the older guys, right, they were, like, like, one of our older brothers in the group was, like, a wrestler, right? And he wasn't just, like, a wrestler. He's, like, a wrestler, okay? Big, thick, you know, athletic. And we had a lot of these older guys. So they would be, like, they'd call me, Billy, what are you doing? Saturday morning. Like, I'm just resting. He's, like, they'd be, like, come out to this park. I'd be, like, okay. And I show up to the park, and they're, like, we're going to park our car here, and we're going to go on an eight-mile run. Like, like, you know those street runners? You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like busy street, right? We used to live by this place called Palos Verdes. I don't know if you guys know in SoCal. And it's like kind of on the hills, right? It's curvy. And like, we park our cars at the top of the hill, and they're like, we're going to run to the beach and back. And I'm like, it takes, it takes us like 15 minutes to drive to the beach. That means it's going to take us like four hours to, to get there, right? And these guys are intense because like, you can't say no, right? It's, it's scary because if you say no, they'll like kill you, right? So it's either you, you live a little longer and die or you just die now, okay? So you just go, right? I mean, and it's scary because, like, you know, I, I believe that running is all mental because I would keep telling myself I want to die. I want to quit. I want to stop. But they'll be like, what are you doing, Billy? And suddenly, like, I find energy that I didn't have before. <laughs> I, I found out that they, man, fear is maybe not the best, but it is a great motivator, okay? <laughs> now, in the midst of this crazy youth group, okay, we had a youth director. His name was Dr. Sun. And I would always call him doctor, and he hated that, but, you know, he was an optometrist, okay? And, like, he was, like, the face that saved our youth group, because every one of us were, like, like, hormonally, like, crazy, and, and a lot of angst, right? But he was, like, the older man in the ministry, like, model man, renaissance man. He would always dress up, like, in a suit, right? If he's casual, he's not wearing a tie, right? <laughs> He'd show up, and he would just love on us. He was so kind. And when we would tell him these stories about how, like, you know, we burned bridges with these other youth groups, he'd be like, he's the type who's like, why'd you do that? Right? But you're like, I think he's rebuking me. But I don't feel rebuked, right? I feel loved into the rebuke, right? I mean, he was just, he was just so kind. I mean, this was the sort of climate that we grew up in as a youth group, and we really bonded in a, in a weird way um, together in this place. I grew up at this church, and in the midst of all this craziness, um, I told you guys last week how, you know, it was really cool that I got my license when I turned 16. I was one of the first people to get my license. And it was kind of like the timing of God because about two weeks after I got my license, my mom fell incredibly ill. Right? And it was like we couldn't figure out what it was. Like she was just bedridden and she was like, my stomach hurts so bad and I can't move. And we, we were like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? I don't know what to do. And my mom's, like, such a kind lady. She's like, oh, Billy, don't worry. I'll figure it out, right? So I was like, okay, I just I trust you. I'm young, and I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I'm like, Mama, let's go to hospital. And she's like, oh, let's just wait one more day, right? I went to school the next day, and I found out, you know, through text and phone that actually it was got so bad that she called our pastor's wife, and she actually took her to the ER. And it found out that her intestine was, inc- was totally blocked. She couldn't pass anything because it was just clogged to the max. I mean, thankfully, it wasn't life-threatening, although it could have gotten to that point. Um, and it took about 
a week for her to recover in the hospital. Now, throughout that week, you know, again, I want to remind you, right, I'm, I'm like 16. I hadn't grown up with my dad in years because he went to Korea, came to Korea when I was in elementary. And I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. My mom was like the breadwinner in terms of how she really took care of me and like, you know, found little side gigs to make some money, just help the family in addition to the income that my father provided. Um, so I was scared. I didn't know what to do throughout all this time. So one of the nights, I'm just at home. You know, when you're 16, you don't really know how to process these things. You just numb yourself. Just watch TV. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I should go visit my mom. And I visited my mom once, but I was so scared to see her sick that I couldn't visit her again. It's like, oh my gosh, what if my mom died? And I remember it was a rainy February night after I got home from school. Someone rang the doorbell. I was scared out of my pants. No one rings the doorbell. <laughs> I opened the door. It's Dr. Sun. Casual Dr. Sun without his tie, <laughs> but dress shirt and slacks still on. And he said, get a jacket and let's go out. And I thought, I'm getting kidnapped. <laughs> My youth director is one of those weird guys, right? But it wasn't like that. He, I said, what are you doing here, John? And he said, I figured you didn't eat dinner. I want to just take you out. And he took me to a restaurant that I would never be able to take myself to. He took me to Elephant Bar, right? Some of you guys are like, Elephant Bar, it's like cheap. I'm like, hey, don't you guys remember when you are in high school, right? $3.50 for, for school lunch was expensive, right? He took me to Elephant Bar and he said, you can order anything on the list, anything on the menu. I still remember what I ordered that night. I ordered jambalaya. It's the first time I had it, right? I was like, what's jambalaya? He said, spicy rice, okay. <laughs> You know, when I look at and when I think about Dr. Sun, I still have a relationship with him even today. There's so many things that you could remember him for. Wow. Graduated with such, you know, you know, into an honorable profession. He became an eye doctor. He's doing well financially. You know, he's setting himself up for success. And even in the church, he was in great standing. And yet, when I think about Dr. Sun, I don't think about any of the manifestations of his success in terms of what he earned in an earthly way. But even these days, when we Facebook message, I always just tell him, thank you. Thank you for being loving. Thank you for being kind. Thank you for being patient. There was a time at youth group when I had a cussing outburst <laughs> on Holy Ween, <laughs> Right? Church is alternative to Halloween. I got so mad that someone took my candy. I cussed them out at church. <laughs> I said, thanks for being patient with me. Not giving up on me. Thanks for inviting me out to all the retreats and telling all the older guys not to hurt me because my mom had asked you to protect me while I'm at the retreat. I'm frail. I'm small. Thanks for being my protector. Thank you for being like Christ to me. Friends, when I think about church, when I think about community, yeah, people can remember us for all the great words that we give to one another. I sure do. I remember all the people who take their time to come in and to exhort me in the spirit and to deliver to me these things that God has placed on their hearts. I do, and I'm so thankful for that. But friends, I never forget how people make me feel in love. 
when they take a moment to even smile and say, how was your day? And even if it's a passing question, the fact that they looked at me and asked makes me go, appreciate you for recognizing me. I wonder what our church could look like. I wonder what our community could look like when we begin to think about the Spirit of God, about the works of God, not as something to build our life up with, but to build one another up in love with. I wonder. I wonder. Let's pray.